like I need a microphone. There's a long, lot of places you can go with that question. Uh, hey, Rich, man, we're glad to have you here this morning. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Yeah. 80 years old and still going strong. Still preaching the word. Still leading and discipling men and women. Praise the Lord. Another thing to celebrate, along with Rich's birthday, uh, if you didn't hear him, Rich turned 80, I think David mentioned that earlier, but uh, another thing to celebrate is uh, my good friend over here, Phil Katona, passed his state boards. And if I wasn't standing up on the platform with a microphone next to my face, he'd probably come up and pop me, just for embarrassing him, but congratulations, Philip. Those of you that know the kind of the, the backstory has been a long arduous trail that you have walked, uh, you and your family have walked in this, but we want to definitely celebrate with you and congratulations to you and uh, kind of this whole new chapter of career for you and, and uh, really ministry uh, more than anything. If those of us, we have many that are in uh, some sort of medical field and see it as a, a ministry really to people, helping people out. Uh, we're back in the book of First Timothy. We've uh, <clears throat> we've been uh, we've worked our way through the first four uh, chapters, kind of before and uh, one after uh, Resurrection Sunday. And of course, last week, if you were here, Ramon Tetrovich he shared uh, one of our missionaries from Ukraine. He's Ukrainian, so he shared uh, the things on their heart. Of course, his wife Rebecca is uh, is struggling with. Uh, she's been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, the, the praise report in that is that the tumor seems to be shrinking at this point, and so uh, that's a huge praise report for them, and uh, it was great to have them here and great to share a meal with them during potluck last Sunday. Uh, but we've been working our way through First Timothy, and so we want to get back in there. As I mentioned, um, the first four sermons uh, were the first four chapters. If, if, uh, if To try to get caught up, if you want to, uh, if you want to go back and listen to some of those and kind of give context even for where we're at today, you can, um, you can go to our website, nlccaddy.com, and listen to the sermons. You can j jump on uh, Apple Podcast um, and look us up on there. Uh, but today, we turn our attention to chapter 5. Chapter 5 of 1 Timothy is where we're going to be. And um, uh, Paul has been writing to his... This is, these, these epistles... Uh, Timothy, First and Second Timothy, and Titus are are <coughs> what Paul is writing to his young proteges, Timothy and Titus, uh, near the end of his life. So some of the last things that he wrote down, we're going to see and study through here. Uh, Timothy has, of course, been appointed to uh, go and help the church in Ephesus and in that region of Asia Minor. Uh, kind of the quick breakdown of the first four chapters that we've looked at is chapter 1, we've looked at the issues of faith. Uh, chapter 2, the issues of prayer. Uh, chapter 3 are e leadership essentials. 
Uh, that's where you're going to see, you know, Paul's talking to Timothy, and, and he says a lot of the same things to Titus. You know, if a man desires to be a leader, uh, this is what kind of character qualities they should have already in play. And chapter 4, he really gets down to encouraging Timothy to teach good doctrine and to live a consistent lifestyle amongst the people there in Asia Minor. To live a consistent lifestyle, to, to live out what you're talking about. Like you're going to set an example, and so here we go. Threaded also in these four chapters, <coughs> uh, Paul's also warning Timothy because there were some issues that cropped up in Ephesus. Uh, he says, beware of false teachers. Beware of false teachers, and he gives a picture of what that looks like in chapter 1, verses 4. And then he also talks about it in chapter 4, those who've departed the faith. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and then he mentions it again down in verse 7 of the previous chapter we've studied through. Those that departed the faith, and it's really, those are, those are critical things to think about. Critical passages for us to examine. Critical passages for us really to uh, beware and to avoid some of those same traps of these false teachers and the people that have departed the faith. Now in chapter 5, the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to share with Timothy, uh, and what we're going to look at today is how Christians should interact and relate with one another. How Christians should uh, interact and relate with one another, and that's part of the reason why we, we do a lot of what we do. That's part of the reason why we, we've uh, encouraging everyone to grab onto these uh, life groups is just go and have dinner with one another. Like, you really get to know people when you sit down and share a meal together. Uh, and and you, get to, you get to understand their story, and you can share stories back and forth, and, and you can interact in a way that, you, that it's not going to happen like that on Sunday morning before the sermon, before the worship and the sermon, and after. You might catch up on some highlights. You might meet somebody and have an initial conversation, but you're not going to sit down and really talk about your life story. You're not going to get caught up. Uh, with people and, and so on and so forth. Those things really happen uh, as we do life together and uh, specifically with that opportunity and ministry of life groups as we share a meal together. There's a uh, phrase that's repeated in the New Testament. It's the one another phrase. One another. It's actually two words in the English, but it's only one word in the Greek. Alalon. And it's used 100 times in 94 New Testament verses. 100 times in only 94 verses. 47 of those verses give instructions to the church. So it's about how we relate with one another. So almost half of them are instructions to the church. Uh, 60% of those verses, so 60 of those verses are instructions specifically from Paul, the Apostle. And only four of the one another verses are commands about kissing one another. <laughs> I had to throw that in because it's kind of the anomaly of the group, right? We're not going to study that part this morning, but I had to mention it. I had to mention it. Oddly enough, actually, as, uh, and we're going to start somewhere other than 1 Timothy to get us going, um, and I do want to jump into the scripture. I, I kind of have a thing, and I've been encouraged by several of you. Like if, a, like if you're somewhere and the pastor doesn't get into the Bible, you know, in the first, like, I don't know, you tell me, 10 minutes? Two? <laughs> Welcome back, Josh and Shauna. How's NLCC Southwest? 
in attendance this morning, I've heard. That's a whole other joke. No, I think uh, we should be diving right into the Bible, of course. Um, and uh, so we're not going to talk about kissing. Oh, I'm way off my notes. What am I thinking? Why did I go there? When you look at these verses, these one another verses, uh, there's some real common themes that show up. There's really, there's four uh, general topics if you pull out the, uh, the uh, kissing one another verses. And uh, those topics are this, unity. One third of the one another commands deal with unity in the church. The second one is love. One third of them instruct Christians on how to love one another. The third category is humility. About 15% stress an attitude of hum- humility and deference amongst the believers. And the last one really is kind of a hodgepodge. I didn't know quite how to title it, so I just put down this. Kind of relational dynamics, like the last portion of it, the last set of verses, and I actually have them printed off if anybody wants a copy of, of all of the breakout of the verses that, that fit into these categories. But relational dynamics, the last 10 references are a variety of encouragements on how we should get along, how we should relate with one another, how we should, how we should do life together, how we should live as a community, how we should have unity. King David wrote this in Psalms 133. He wrote a song about unity. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For, <clears throat> for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Like God is big into church unity. He's big into, he's big into men and women, uh, his followers, his people, working through their issues and working through them together and doing life together as a community, being somewhat, if you will, kind of, uh, I would put this term on it, kind of a, a, a righteous uh, interdependency a, a, on one another. We're fiercely independent people. I get that. And our, our culture really pushes against, it, it, it promotes unity from a certain perspective, but it really promotes uh, the, the individuality uh, and what's good for you is good for you, what's good for me is good for me. And we can just like have unity in not having unity. It's, just, it's the most bizarre mindset, really, that you can imagine. But God wants unity amongst his people. So how do we get it? H- how, is, how is unity obtained? Uh, just like every aspect of the Christian life, Jesus is both the source and the standard of our unity. Jesus sits dead square in the middle, and there's a great example that we're going to look at today, obviously not in 1 Timothy 5, but there's a great example of Jesus uh, uh, building community in the lives of his people, right at the very end of his life. The very end of his life. We'll get into that at another time. But as we we read through 1 Timothy 5, we're going to see some real foundational building blocks for unity and also for charity in the church. And as we read, notice, take note of those stark contrasts between biblical and cultural points of view. Let's jump in there, dive right in. We're going to study through the first 16 verses this morning. First Timothy chapter 5 starts off with this. Paul says, 
Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with all purity. Verse 3 says, Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasures is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 9 says, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she's relieved, relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently, diligently followed every good work. But refuse the younger widows, for when they begin to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having co- condemnation because they have cast off their first faith, and if besides they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore I desire that the younger widows bear children, will marry, bear, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may, be <coughs> that it may relieve those who are really widows. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to uh, learn from you and hear from you uh, this morning that would be tuned in to your voice, uh, that we would uh, mine out of your holy scriptures here, Lord, uh, the things that you have for us that would build community, build unity, that would strengthen families, uh, Lord, that would uh, uh, strengthen uh, multi-generational families, Lord, to serve and to, to worship you and to honor you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So back to verse 1. Paul's really laid out for Timothy four relational dynamics of the believer. Four relational dynamics. Because he mentioned there in the first couple of verses, he says, hey, this is, how, this is how you should view Timothy. This is how you should view older men. This is how you should... Uh, communicate and relate with them. This is how you should view younger men. This is how you should view older women, and this is how you should view younger women. So he kind of puts Timothy in the, in the way, and is the, I don't have the monitor in front of me. Oh yeah, good job, Haley. Uh, so I, I just put that little um, diagram up there to kind of give you the idea. So if you kind of put an arrow out each way. So <clears throat> Timothy is instructed by Paul to instruct the church, this is how you relate with people. This is how you should view people, right? This is how you should, this is how, this is your first filter on how to connect with a wide variety. Pretty much everybody in the church uh, is in one of those categories, regardless of age or gender. (coughs) The picture in our minds really should be that of a family. 
we need to be in the business of building family relationships in the church, not just in our own core family. That's definitely true. We definitely want to support that idea. We want to support that good theology that you're building your home, uh, fathers, husbands, mothers, wives, that you're building your home, but also then step it out a step that we're also building the church. And so how is a person, how is a person, how is this young Timothy, likely in his 30s, how is he then to relate and connect and do life together with these four different quadrants of people, four different demographics? Uh, he starts off really with, with a caution. Don't rebuke an older man. Don't rebuke an older man, Timothy, right? You should see him as a father. So you're not going to, you, you, you shouldn't just go out and just start blasting people regardless of their age for no apparent reason or even for sometimes good reason. Rather, rather than rebuke, he says exhort. To exhort is to encourage somebody, right? When I was a younger fella, and, and uh, yeah, early when I was in leadership in the church, I made a few of these very mistakes. Like these verses should have jumped out of the page for me, right? I'd get in a tangle, and there was a few times I can remember I was pretty, I was pretty big for my britches, you know, and getting after guys that were considerably older than me. And I, I violated this verse. So I'll say that this has been a learning curve as much for me as for anybody. You know, I brought rebuke, heavy, heavy rebuke on a guy that was old enough to be my own dad. Uh, and it, let's just say it didn't go well. <laughs> right? He was in the wrong. Uh, and then the way I handled it put me in the wrong. A rebuke is a, this harsh chastisement. Um, <clears throat> this particular Greek word, I, I can't pronounce it, but the essence of this, really, uh, this word rebuke is really to strike out after which means it's not just a, you know, a gentle thing. It's really like you're going after this guy. And that's what Paul says, hey, Timothy, don't do that. Don't do that with older men, right? Rather, bring some encouragement to him. Bring some encouragement. That's the idea, exhort means, is to urge or to encourage. We need to elevate in our homes, really, and also in the church, this old-fashioned respect for people that are older than us. Uh, it's not a new concept, but it's a concept that our culture is losing. We're losing this, this multi-generational, this, this generation, there's a generational detachment in this particular area. And we've seen it now for several years, we've seen it now probably for several decades, where there's this kind of, there's this despising of authority, the word says, there's these harsh rebukes. Every generation looks at the previous one through their faults, says this is all that you did wrong. And if that is elevated beyond learning from the people that are older than us, we miss a great deal. We miss out on the richness and the wisdom and the experience of the people that, that have gone before us, that have made those same mistakes, that have, that have gone down those roads, those very people that would say, whoa, 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 don't do that, do this. We would do ourselves a lot of favor, men, if we would latch on to the older fellows amongst us and learn from them. 
Leviticus 19.32 says this, You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, I am the Lord. That's kind of our approach. That should be our approach as younger fellows. That we, should, we shouldn't let an older guy, you know, we should rush in there. A friend of mine, a <clears throat> guy that owns a business here in town, would uh, tell all of his apprentice workers that if the journeyman got out of the truck and made it to the back of the truck to get all their tools for the job and started packing those tools to the door, you young man better tackle him. You better tackle that older guy and pick up the tools and do the job. That's your job. Your job is to wait on him. Your job is to serve him. Your job is to support the journeyman as an apprentice, not sit back and let the older, you know, journeyman in this particular uh, field of work, not allow him to do all the work and carry all the weight and pack all the tools and everything else. That's our job. That's how we should have that mindset. And that's the same mindset. It's that same mindset really that we need to have here inside the church. That we have an, we have an obligation. We have an obligation to those that go in front of us. We have an obligation to those that, those generations that have gone uh, ahead of us in the sense that we need to examine and look and learn from them and not just look at them with a story or an attitude of despise or rebuke. Uh, the story of uh, Absalom, <coughs> this is kind of in our chronological read, so it's kind of fresh in my mind, but the story of Absalom, King David's oldest son, uh, there in 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 18, is a prime example of what younger men should not do. So the, the Bible's full of examples on what not to do. This is one of them. You guys jump in there and read it. But Absalom, Absalom kind of despised his dad in a way, right? He sought to kind of undermine David's authority in Israel. And so th- what was in his heart in that despise, what was in his mind in that dis- in, in that mindset of, of, of despising King David. He wanted, he wanted to be the king. He wanted it quick. He wanted it now. And so he began to despise him. And he really dishonored his father David. He showed no fear of the Lord. Men, we have to see that the Lord is, <coughs> has, uh, uh, we have to, uh, for us younger guys, we need to see that the Lord has brought these older gray-haired fellows into our lives uh, to be our spiritual fathers and honor them and such. The second category there is the younger men. The younger men. And uh, <clears throat> I suppose where you land on the uh, age scale would determine who's older, who's younger. Um, but Paul invokes this idea for Timothy of brotherhood. Right? Treat the younger men as brothers. Treat the younger men as brothers. We, we, he creates an obligation there that for Timothy to teach all of those in Ephesus that, hey, you're, you're not just acquaintances, not if you're in the faith. You're a brother in the faith. What would you do for your brother? How would you treat your brother? How should you treat your brother? Brothers need encouraged. Brothers need challenged. Brothers need called up. In other words, there's always a time in our lives where, where we need that challenging word. Hey, dude, it's time for you to step up, Right? It's time for you to get with it. You're goofing off. You're not tending to what you need to tend to. You've been doing this, that, or the other thing. Uh, unacceptable. 
unacceptable. They need that type of challenge, that type of being called up into the faith. They, of course, that comes with encouragement. It's not all criticism. It's not all criticism. We have a, uh, uh, an opportunity here that lasts, there's kind of a time frame to it, so to speak, especially with our younger men, to help bring them up into manhood, to call them up, as it were, into being a man. Dads, we need to take advantage of the time that we have. Don't goof around through life and miss that opportunity to call your sons into manhood, to call them on up. It's like every culture through all of history has had some sort of a rite of passage, some sort of a, a calling up, some kind of a, you know, go to the mountain, whatever it is type of experience, except for our culture. We don't think that way. We just think that, well, when they're old enough to vote and be drafted into the service, you know, apparently they're a man. Uh, that's not the case. Let's be real with where it is. Like I remember one day, Tammy and I were uh, Christmas shopping, and we walk into Best Buy, you know, and, and you go in the door of Best Buy, and I, we were trying to make our, make our way to the back, so I took kind of like a shortcut route through, and I went through all the gaming section. All you young guys are like, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Everybody's starting to twitch in their seats a little bit. Like, hey, <laughs> I'm not much of a gamer, so it didn't bother me. But you know what I observed? You know how they have like the, TV, the monitors and they have the, the, the controllers that hang down? And so like you can try out a game or whatever. <coughs> I guess you can test drive a game. Who would have thought? And um, <coughs> anyway, as I turned the corner to go down that aisle, there's like five guys that were in their mid-30s with full facial hair. And this is on like, I work for myself. I can set my own schedule, right? This is in the middle of the day, on a work day. And I'm like thinking, man, you guys really need a job. <laughs> right? Just because you're 18 and can be drafted doesn't make you a man. Right? Doesn't make you a man. And I looked at those dudes and I thought, yeah, we're already there. We're already there. And I, it's not a harsh judgment call. I just thought, what? Why, why are these guys here? That was the thought that went through my mind. Why are these guys here? If you're a gamer, don't be offended. Um, if you're offended, come and talk to me. I'll set you straight later. <laughs> Younger men need to be trained. That's what's missing in the picture that I saw there in Best Buy. Men need to be trained up. There is a really... If you think about it, and I've coached long enough, and I know there's others here that have worked both in the school system, been coaches and whatnot. There's something inside of every young boy all the way through that desires to be taught and trained and brought up to be a man. It's there. And if it's not cultivated, if it's not fertilized, if it's not... Uh, uh, talked about in homes, if it's not talked about in community, if it's not talked about in the church, we're not doing our job. It's there. And sometimes these fellas, just these young guys just need a little encouragement. They just need a little bump. They need a little push. They need a little training. They also need a sense of belonging. A sense of belonging. That's what brothers need. They need a sense of belonging. So you can challenge, if you tip too far onto the criticism side of that scale, uh, they will lose the sense of, of belonging that should be there. 
They need a sense of belonging. They say that, uh, I've, I've looked at statistics, uh, they say that these guys that get sucked into the, gr- the gang lifestyle, like high 90 percentile, it's because there's a sense of belonging. There's th- th- that's why they're there. Because they have nobody else that cares about them. They have nobody else that shows them any attention. There's, n- there's nobody else that shows them anything that they really long for in their heart. And here comes this guy flashing, a, you know, with a gold chain, you know, and a pistol in the back of his shirt, in his pants, and flashing a few hundred dollar bills and saying, hey, I need you to come and work for me. It's the first guy that's ever shown them any attention. And they create a sense of belonging. I'm telling you people, if there's one thing that the church needs to get on board with, it's demonstrating and, uh, and communicating a sense of belonging. Like we should be masters at doing this. Creating a sense of belonging for our young men specifically. And really everybody. It's not just, I'm, I'm only in the young men category. I haven't even made it past the first couple of verses here. We better keep cooking. Yeah. Got the approval. Here we go. Last one is they need to be commissioned. They need to be commissioned. Young men desire a sense of purpose. They want to fight in some sort of a battle. They want to fight. They want to fight for some good purpose in life. And I see it, and I see it, and I see it, and I deal with it every fall. Uh, uh, we raise we raise Robbie specifically. I did w- specifically with some of these things in mind. Like you need to, you have to go out and fight some sort of a battle, right? As a young guy, it's a sense of proving up. It's a sense of uh, of a part of becoming a man. And uh, I would venture to say that uh, David, as a shepherd boy, the commissioning, the anointing came uh, early on, but really that sense of uh, jumping into the battle or the commissioning to be a warrior came. Uh, he had all the prep. He had all the prep ahead of time as a teenager, but when he stepped out across from Goliath with nothing more than a sling and a couple stones, and he rocked that guy's world, like all of Israel saw that was David's moment. Right? It wasn't when Samuel came to anoint him necessarily, not that that wasn't important, but that just pointed to things that were going to happen. David, kind of in the eyes of the people and amongst his countrymen, was commissioned kind of as a leader. Uh, Saul was killed as thousands. David's killed as ten thousands. That's kind of what supports that idea. In Peter's closing comments, 1 Peter 3.8, he says this in a list of things. He says, love is brothers, right? That should define our brotherhood. That should define our treatment of one another. That should define our treatment of the younger guys. We should be loving, loving one another as brothers. All right, let's move on. Older women. I get really passionate about the previous one. I could probably just stay there the whole day. But we need to talk about what the Lord's shared with Paul here in uh, context. Older women. Older women. Next week uh, is Mother's Day. Am I right about that? Good job. Got the thumbs up for my wife. Pass the test. March 24th is our anniversary. I don't know. Just came to my mind. As long as I had dates right, I thought I might as well. Yeah. Am I doing okay? November 19th is Tammy's birthday. 
She's six months and two days older, younger than me. And I tell everybody I was cutting my own steak rich by the time my wife came along. <laughs> All right, let's be serious. Older women. And Paul's going to expand on this in coming verses. Uh, so <coughs> I'll leave the context in the context. Uh, but he points out here for Paul, and again, pointing back to uh, the family aspect, he says, or Paul says to Timothy, hey, hey, treat the older ladies like mothers. Treat the older ladies like mothers. So I only want to kind of put a, a, a little seed in your mind. How do you treat your mom? Right? How do you treat your mom? Presumably great. Right? That's how we should be treating all the older ladies in the fellowship. We should be treating them as mothers. Uh, what wouldn't you do for your mom? Right? What would you do for your mom? And this kind of falls into the next category as well, the younger women as sisters. What wouldn't you do for the ladies in your life to protect them? Like there's nothing off the table for me. I'll just say that. I'll do whatever it takes to protect the ladies in my life. That's how we should view the ladies in the church. The sense of honor and dignity and gratitude and thankfulness and protection. Younger women as sisters, Paul stresses this aspect uh, with a specific emphasis of purity. Right? He said, in all purity. Younger women and sisters. You know what that means? That means that guys, you shouldn't be scamming on the other gals. Like, that's the reality of what he's saying. We should have a, a pure intention, a pure intention about the younger ladies in the church. And I know I'm stepping on probably a few toes when it comes to relational dynamics and the way that teens operate. I get it. I raised mine. But we have to come back to fundamentally what the Bible says. And the Bible says, hey, in all purity, you treat these younger ladies like your sister. So what wouldn't you do for your sister? How do you treat your sister? You know, how would you protect her honor, uh, her reputation? That's how we should be viewing these things. That's how life should be played out in the church. The overarching theme here really, again, as I've said before, is that of family. And it's to be this. And I, I, I take this, uh, and I know I've mentioned it since then, but Don Bowe mentioned it the last funeral I was at, uh, about Dick Lewis, a good friend of mine that passed away, um, and it really applies here in this way, is that our relationships amongst the fellowship and amongst believers, we should be relational givers, not takers, right? That's kind of what he's describing here. Be a giver, not a taker. Don't take away, don't be selfish, don't be, we, sh we should be giving in a good way to the people that are around us, whether it's in respect, whether it's in protection, whether it's in uh, you know, encouragement, whatever those things are, we need to be relational givers, not a taker. We have God-created and ordained obligation to those in the faith to live as family and to take care of one another, uh, especially to those that we're related to, especially to those that we are related to. How we take care of our own family members will say more than to the world than a thousand sermons, right? I can I, I, I just rattle off sermons for uh, the rest of my life and, and a million more lives, uh, but if I'm not living what the Word says, 
if I'm not demonstrating both to you and to, uh, and to those around me in our community that I'm actually following what the Word says, uh, I'm just shooting myself in the foot. Right? There's nothing there. Like, yeah, forget it. Don't want it. Jesus said in John 12 that uh, we're always going to have the poor amongst us. The second point really is charity has a process, and that's verses 3 through 16. But Jesus kind of, uh, to tee this up, Jesus being the standard, he said, hey, you're always going to have the poor amongst you. You're not always going to have me. That was the context of what he was getting at. That being said, he also has said that there's a kind of a vetting process. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul's talking to Timothy, and he lines out here a vetting process in the area of benevolence and charity. What does that look like? How does that apply? Uh, here it is in a nutshell, uh, talking specifically about widows, widows that are really widows, the word says. The quick answer is a lady over 60 who is completely alone and has been steadfast in her Christian faith and service. That's the short answer. Let's uh, expand that a little bit. Because there is a bit of a process. There's a three-step program that is being laid out here when it comes to charity uh, and, and meeting the needs of those around us. And <clears throat> let me start with this, is that, let me start and preface this by saying, uh, we're a church that loves to give. Like, if there's, if there's needs, we love to meet needs. But we also analyze, our, in meeting this need, let's just say we're throwing money at something. In throwing money at something, are we actually doing a detriment? Are we doing a detriment to the people that we're giving money to because we just want to give them money to, to, to deal with their current crisis? Sometimes, sometimes that's the case, and sometimes that's where it has to stop. Because sometimes what's, more, what's really needed is not just, you know, a thousand bucks or five. It's they need men and women to come alongside and to really get to the bottom line of what's going on. Money doesn't answer every issue. And most of the times you're just dealing with the symptoms, symptoms by throwing money at it. That being said, Paul lines out a three-step program here for charity for benevolence in the church. And those three steps break down to this. You, yours, and the church. In that order, specifically. You, verse 3, in my notes say, if you can work, you need to work. If you can work physically, you need to work. Second Thessalonians 3, uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says, for even when <coughs> we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk amongst you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Man, that's pretty straightforward. Like, Paul's not mincing any words talking to the Thessalonians. He says, hey, if you can work, you need to work. You need to get a job. And I've said that before many times. You need to get a job. Men, your job is to provide for your family. Ladies, I'm not opposed to ladies working as long as the homes get taken care of. Uh, we see straightforwardly in the scripture, ladies doing all kinds of things in the marketplace uh, and, and you name it. So that's not an encumbrance necessarily or, or a hindrance I don't think that's out there. But the reality is, is that 
when it comes to provision, we need to see that God's first answer is for you to be working. Jesus was a worker. 30 years he worked. Three years he was in ministry. I'll guarantee you his hands were rough and tumble. He wasn't soft palm Jesus. Not the way he's been made out all the times that, you know, as I grew up in church. Jesus was a worker. He's a carpenter. I've done carpentry work. I know what it's like. Right? It can be brutal. I imagine it was especially brutal in the first century. They didn't have cordless screw guns. They didn't have the lift. They didn't have the excavators. They didn't have any of that. It was all 100% manual labor. You were lucky if you had a saw. Right? He was a worker. Peter was a worker. Paul was a worker. Peter's a fisherman. Tough job. Right? Paul was a tent maker. These guys worked, and they worked hard. They worked hard while they were in ministry. So there's no doubt about the reality is, and in fact, uh, I would venture to say, and I'll close this part with this, um, if you're out of work, and there's some that are out of work, we've been praying for people that are out of work, that, that the Lord would lead them to the right job. Uh, I think that you can p- pray, and I don't think, I, I know that you can pray with confidence about finding a job if you're unemployed, because I believe And I know that the Bible says God wants you to work. You can pray with confidence. You don't have to wonder. You might not have all the answers on the front end, but you can pray with a sense of confidence knowing that God wants you to provide for you and yours, which leads us to the next step in the benevolence category. So the first job is yours. The uh, the first job is you. The second part is yours. Verse 4, the Lord expects has expectations for us in dealing with our own family. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show, learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Our culture has taken a vast turn. It'd be great to run backwards through history in some sort of a time travel way because this was the norm uh, for generations up until about 60 years ago. This is what was normal. In fact, if you drive back in the Midwest where Tammy grew up or where her sister lives and you get out amongst the Amish communities, you're going to see these verses play out every single day where grandma and grandpa, moms and dads, next generation, young fella with his new bride and they are there and they take care of one another. There's some interdependency there that's good and whole and healthy as they follow Christ in their faith. The second level there is you take care of yours. Uh, That's why I said at the beginning, an older lady, over 60, who is all alone, who has no family, but if there's family, then the family needs to take care of her. That's what the Word of God says. Verse 8, there is a warning for family that fails to honor and take care of their moms. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a pretty harsh statement that Paul makes. That if we fail to do the basic things of the faith, the basic principles that the Word of God lays out by taking care of our own family, uh, our own family members that are in need, uh, he puts us in a category that is not good, to say the least. A category that puts us in a lot of danger. We need to take care of our own. 
We need to provide for our own, whatever that looks like, however that comes about. I get it that not everybody needs, uh, in their older years, not every lady that's a widow needs a lot of financial help. Great, awesome. That's wonderful. That's a burden that's not on the next generation or the one after that. That's perfect if that works out, if that's your scenario or people that you know. But I'm here also to say that if that's not the case, then as Christ followers, you have an obligation. I have an obligation, she's sitting right there, to take care of the widows in our lives. And let me tell you, when God says, this is what you're supposed to do, then he finds creative ways to make that happen. We don't have to fret, and we don't have to wonder, and we don't have to figure out what that looks like. We tighten up our belts, we get to work, and we figure out a way to make it happen. And God brings grace into the relationships and into that dynamic. And the next thing you know, the Lord's blessing you with a few extra bucks here and there, and you name it, because you're following His Word. And it's not a work to get blessings. The blessings just follow after the obedience, kind of a natural fashion. Now, I said at the onset, Jesus is the standard provi- for providing for his mother. Uh, he did that right at the end of his life. John nineteen twenty five says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his Mary, <coughs> his mother and his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, And the disciple whom he loved, John, talking about himself, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. So Jesus, in this last moment, some of the last things that he ever said, one of the last things that he ever did uh, was to provide for his mom, knowing that, you know, time's ticking, like any second here, you know, he's going to die. So he provided for Mary, who was already a widow. He provided by saying, hey, John, you take care of my mom. You know what's interesting? Jesus had siblings. It wasn't that he didn't have siblings. I kind of wonder, like, I've often wondered, was James standing there? Was he not? Was he, like, how did he receive all that? But we do know from church history that Mary... And the Apostle John had a, had a real close relationship in years after. And Jesus transfers that responsibility onto John rather than his own half-brother James. And here's my conclusion why. Because James wasn't a, wasn't a believer at the time. 1 Corinthians 15 says James became a believer after he saw the resurrected Christ. So he wasn't even a believer. His half-brother wasn't even a believer. He would have been the next in line to take care of her. He wasn't even a believer. So Jesus puts a particular emphasis, a particular emphasis on the fact that it's not just providing monetarily. It's not just making sure that they have a place to live. It's not just making sure that the bills are paid. That's not it. Jesus makes a very pointed uh, uh, statement in this transfer of responsibility, that Mary's spiritual welfare was more important than her physical. That's the point of it. And they stayed really close ever since. That's kind of the way that I suppose that I bolt together kind of a reasonable explanation of why that happened. So Jesus was more concerned then with his mom's spiritual welfare 
than our physical welfare. The third area, the third area, man, alive. I hope you guys can listen fast. I'll go quick. The, the third area is the church. I'm actually going to cut my notes off. We're going to stop here with this last point um, and not get into verse 11 on through. We'll talk about that next week. Well, we'll see how it goes. All right. The third area of benevolence. You guys are all comfortable. Is there more coffee back there? A couple more donuts in the back. Feel free. The third area then becomes the church. The third area of benevolence, the third filter there, then becomes the church. If, there's, if, if you can't provide for yourself, if you have no family to provide for you, and, and you're hurting, you're, you're without basic necessities, you know, we're not going to buy Teslas for people. It doesn't work that way. But if that's you in you, that category, then that's where the church s- steps in. Right? We don't even have charging stations here anyway, so it doesn't matter. But that's where the church steps in. The church is to pick up the slack then for those that are true widows that cannot provide for themselves and have no family to take care of them. That's where the church comes in. Now, if the church decides to be a blessing beyond those measures, uh, (coughs) then that's up to the leadership of a local church for sure. Uh, And we've done some of that. Uh, we've also taken the long, hard road to sit people down and say, hey, <coughs> you're not providing for yourself. Like, you want the church to pick up the slack, but you haven't done the first two steps. And so uh, let's start there, and then let's work together on this problem. Paul also gives a mixture of warning and direction uh, for the younger widows, and I'll move real quick through this. He says, but refusing the younger widows, verse 11, uh, but refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they've cast off their first faith. He starts off with this grim picture. The warning is really wrapped around the old-fashioned phrase, grow wanton. Uh, The Bible scholar Adam Clark says of the idea of grow wanton, (coughs) the word is supposed to to be derived from from, uh, two concepts, to remove and the rein or the bit. And it's a metaphor taken from a pampered horse from whose mouth the rain or the bit has been removed so that there's nothing to check or confine them. The metaphor is plain enough and the application then becomes easy. Uh, they're unchecked in their faith is the other concern that Paul has. Unchecked in their faith, similar to those that have uh, fallen or, or left the faith that he talked about in the previous chapter, verses, chapter 4, verse 1. The casting off describes is described in these... these uh, in these views of, of, uh, and descriptions of being idle and not at home much and a gossip and a busybody. Uh, so God's solution then for those that are younger, those younger widows, those whose husbands have passed on or what have you, uh, that they should remarry, that they should have kids and they should manage their home and that they should not give the adversary any reason to accuse them of wrongdoing. That's the point in there where he says, (coughs) Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage their house, give no opportunity to the adversary, here it is, to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. So it's this idea of this downward spiral 
uh, that can really entrap younger ladies. Younger ladies, look at these verses. It's, I'm not criticizing you. I think the Holy Spirit saying, hey, be careful. Be careful to walk out uh, his ways. Be careful that you don't fall into one of these traps of the enemy uh, so that then your adversary could speak about you in a reproachful way, that your adversary could bring slander about you. Uh, be careful there. And know, in fact, that some have already fallen that way. Some have already gone that direction. You know? And they, the, this category of people should not be held into that uh, destitute standpoint because God has a plan for them. And he lays out this plan right here. Hey, get remarried if you're a widow, if you're a young uh, I'm not saying that those decisions are all easy. I know it's easy to kind of gloss over it. I don't mean to make light of it in any way. Uh, these are tough, hard, painful decisions in reality. Uh, to have more kids or to manage the home, those are all part of God's plan. Uh, to kind of re-engage, as it were, into the life that <coughs> uh, you had once had, I guess is kind of the idea if you're a, a younger widow. But be warned that you don't fall into the, the sinful side of it. These are all aspects that Paul has been talking about to Timothy on how we, inter how we interact with one another, but also how we can encourage one another. Everybody's situation's a little different. I get that. Everybody's uh, uh, either issues in life or trials and tribulations in life are a little bit different. I understand that. I understand that some are really self-inflicted, self-inflicted decisions. I know that's true sometimes of me. Some of mine are, are completely self-inflicted. We have to come to grips with that, that those things are true. Sometimes life happens. Sometimes we don't know why things happen. You know? And in whatever the case is, the answer is always the same. It's more of Christ. It's more of Christ's ways. It's more of Jesus' standard. And your culture around you wants to keep lowering the bar uh, and the standard that Jesus uh, set for his people. Lower the bar so it makes it easier to get over. In reality, it doesn't make it easier to get over. It makes it easier to trip over. It makes it easier to fall on the other side. That's the reality of that lower standard, that lower bar. The bar is there for a reason. That's God's best for you. That's God's plan for you. That's God, where, where he wants you to go. And our response, if the worship team wants to come on up, we'll close with this thought. Our response then is to believe that that's true as a Christ follower, to believe that those things are true and to trust God to bring them about. Because if God says that those things are true, if God says that those things are right, if God says that that standard is, is holy, he's going to bring about a circumstance. He's going to bring about an opportunity, even if it's in the last second, like it was for him and his own mother, He's going to bring upon an, opportun an opportunity for us to walk that out. We need to keep walking in faith, believing, and knowing and trusting that things seems are true as we continue to build life together, as we continue to do community together, as we continue to relate with the older guys, the younger guys, the older women, the younger women, as we look at the needs in our own church, as we look at opportunities to be benevolent and caring and giving to people. We need to not be tempted. We need to resist the temptation to lower the bar, but rather to encourage and build up people
to reach the bar. Let's worship together.